0: Hey everyone, welcome to Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. It's good to have you with us today as we continue our journey through the Gospel according to Luke. And we start a new chapter today, and that new chapter is Luke chapter 19. And we will be looking at verses 1 to 10. This, to many of us, is a familiar story, perhaps to all of us because it's the story of Zacchaeus. So I put the title on it Zacchaeus chosen, pursued, saved and transformed. It is a wonderful story and it's going to be of great interest of us to for us to go through this because not only does it talk about Zacchaeus's salvation, how he came to Christ, But in a general sense, this presents for us a pattern of all of us and anyone who comes to Christ. And so it will provoke some thought on our part as we think about it. Now, we have been looking at, in the chapters beforehand, Jesus addressing various individuals, uh, various One's Bartimaeus last time. We took a look at the rich young ruler. Jesus is just coming in contact with all kinds of individuals, and each one has a story, a storyline to it. And uh, we have been looking at those stories, those individuals in depth. If you go to the end of this passage we're going to look at today, and you go to verse 10 of Luke 19, and if you do not have your Bibles open and you want to open them you can open them now or just follow along on the screen but verse 10 says for which is what we call an explanatory for it's explaining or it's summarizing what's just been said and uh, and this is kind of a summary of these nine verses beforehand so it says for the son of man Jesus says has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So keep that in mind as we work our way through this, that what Jesus is explaining here, and what he is summing up here, is exactly for, the, for our understanding of the purpose of why he came. He came to seek, and he came to save that which was lost. So let's begin working our way through this passage, starting at verse 1. It says, "He, He, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, in order to appreciate, when we talk about Zacchaeus and we talk about him being a chief tax collector, and the fact that he was rich, you need to know some things about Jericho. When we talk about interpreting the Bible, we talk about interpreting it literally, uh, grammatically, historically, culturally, geographically, and contextually. But a part of understanding the Bible is understanding it geographically, what uh, is the setting physically on this earth of this particular city or whatever we might be talking about it might be a wilderness might be a desert it might be a sea it might be mountain and so we need to know the geography and what takes place so here's jericho it is jericho is the lowest inhabited point on earth. Now there are lower points, but they're not inhabited. Jericho happens to be the lowest inhabited point on earth. It was on major trade routes that automatically made it important, so therefore it was a center of trade, of commerce, of business, of industry, and agriculture. It was kind of a crossroads, east, west, north, south. You had uh, roads coming into this place, and people traveled those roads. So it was uh, a major center of commerce. Interesting, in the summer it was warm, and in the winter it was moderate to warm. You go back and you study the city itself and the people and, and so on, and the geography, the climate. People in winter could wear linen, no problem, because it was that warm, and so it made somewhat of an ideal place for people to be. It was about 18 miles from Jerusalem. You'll see it on a map when we get down to it here. It had beautiful gardens. It had roses that were planted everywhere. Herod loved it so much, he built a theater. He built an amphitheater there, there were palaces that were built by various dignitaries, people that loved the the situation where it was at. It had a couple of different springs that fed into Jericho, plus it was pretty close to the River Jordan, Jordan River. It was known for its balsam. Balsam was an aromatic and usually oil and resinous substance. And it was known for dates. Now, I don't mean that Jericho was a place for a dating service where you could get a hot date. But it was known for the dates that you eat. So it was a popular place, served purposes. In fact, Mark Antony once gave the city of Jericho to Cleopatra as a gift. She must not have liked it very much because she sold it right away, took the money. So anyway, the bottom line is there's lots and lots of money that flowed through Jericho. And that's significant when we meet this individual, Zacchaeus, and how he's described. Now there were three great tax centers in the first century in Israel. One was located in Capernaum. On the northern port of Galilee, there was Caesarea, which was on the sea coast, and there was Jericho. And they would put these tax centers where there was a lot of activity, there was a lot of money, there was a lot of wealth. Well, you can imagine the seacoast would be an excellent place to have it, because here you had ships coming in, you could tax everything on the ships. Uh, Capernaum, on the northern port of Galilee, you had fishing industries, you could tax a lot of people and a lot of things up there. And then you had Jericho. And Jericho, again, with all the uh, trade routes coming through it, a lot of people, a lot of people transporting goods. And so uh, these tax collectors that would be at these centers, I mean, they just taxed everything, every wheel on your cart, every, perhaps, rain on the horse that you would be, that would be pulling your cart or whatever. I mean, they just taxed absolutely everything. So you would set them up in ideal places where you could tax a lot of things. Jericho was one of them. The reason Jesus is going through Jericho is because he's on his way to Jerusalem to observe the Passover as were thousands of other people. And that's why you have this big crowd that we'll see when we get to verse 3. This big crowd that's passing through Jericho is, they're on the way to the Passover, plus they're very curious about Jesus. Jesus always had a large throng of people that were around him and following him. Significant thing is he's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he, so to speak, will be the Passover lamb when he gets there, which will be sacrificed, which no one knows except himself, that he will be sacrificed there for the sins of the world. So many would be passing through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem at that time. Here's a map on the next slide. You can get some kind of bearings here you can see up towards the top, you've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got Capernaum up at the top, you've got in a trade route that runs the red line, and that thing runs from the north all the way down, crosses over the River Jordan into Perea, and came all the way down, and then crosses back over the Jordan again, comes into Jericho, and then the road leading from Jericho, on down southwest, about 18 miles to Jerusalem. And then you have Bethlehem, which is another five miles southwest of that. You also have another trade route that runs, you can see over there in the green, Megiddo, and that's running down on the western side of Israel and comes in to Jerusalem and then up to Jericho again. So these are trade routes that were widely traveled. People transporting their goods from place to place. The next slide kind of interesting because it shows, when we're talking about Jericho being the lowest point, you can see where the mean sea level is, and you can see Jericho below that, and then you go up to the right, and you can see Jerusalem up there. And so Jericho is a minus 853 feet below sea level, Jerusalem is 2,133 feet above sea level, so you have a total difference here of 2,986 feet. Quite a sizable difference. So, if you were taking that trip, you were traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, you had quite a steep climb in order to arrive at Jerusalem. If you were going the other way from Jerusalem down to Jericho, piece of cake, very easy to go down although the area was quite rugged. In the next slide again I show the level of the Mediterranean Sea over on the left. You see Jerusalem kind of in the middle and it's footage above sea level and then you see Jericho way down deep and how low that was in comparison. So you get some kind of idea how things just drop down for Jericho, and then rise up, actually quite rapidly, up to Jerusalem. Next slide you see back in those times, it was rugged terrain that you went over when we talked about going from the plight of the Samaritan. We showed some slides on the way from Jericho to Jerusalem. You've got rocks, you've got caves, you've got places that robbers, thieves, Would hide out. This would be an ideal place. Again, Jericho, full of money. People traveling on these routes would have money and therefore would be prime targets for a criminal, a thief, a robber to rob them. I mean, who's going to be out there? There's no highway patrol, there's nothing. And so you could get by with a robbery quite easily. That's why they usually traveled in caravans. Very rough terrain. So, that's Jericho. It says in verse 2, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So, when we're describing Zacchaeus here in verse 2, there are two characteristics of him. Number one, he was a chief tax collector. Okay, what does that mean? Well, first of all, he was a level above the average tax collector who was for instance, like Matthew. Matthew was an average tax collector. Here you've got someone who is a chief tax collector. So this means that Zacchaeus was probably like a regional or district manager or commissioner. He oversaw the franchisees. Remember again, the way you became a tax collector is that you would go to Rome and you would bid on a particular region or area that you could collect taxes in, and if you were the highest bidder, then you got that area, and you went in there on behalf of Rome to collect taxes. Rome would tell you how much you need to get from people for taxes, how much you need to collect, and turn that into them, and then anything you want to collect above that, you can keep for yourself. So so Zacchaeus, uh, being a chief tax collector, He was in position to make a lot of money. He really was a professional extortioner, as were all of the tax collectors of that time. They just got whatever they could get, whatever they could charge, and the people had to pay it, so it was extortion. So, the way they do that, they put a lot of pressure on people, they intimidated people, and as a result, these people, these tax collectors, were the most hated. In the city, Zacchaeus would have been the most hated in Jericho for what he was, and he had those underneath him they would be hated just as just as much, and he's the chief guy, and he's going to get a cut of the action, so he's telling those who are under him, "Here's how much you have to get, here's how much I have to get, and then on top of that, you can decide what you want to receive for yourself. So then it says, very specifically, it's pointing out to us that he was rich. And we would expect that because, number one, he's a tax collector. Number two, he's got guys underneath him. And so there's a lot of money being brought in. So this tells us his position, a chief tax collector, resulted in great wealth. And this story is further proof of what Jesus taught in Luke 18 with the rich young ruler. Remember in the rich young ruler, and Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy or rich person to get into heaven. The disciples responded to that statement by saying, well then, if that's the case, who in the world can make it into heaven? Jesus responds to that and says, with God, all things are possible. So in the story of Zacchaeus here, who is a person who is very, very rich, and you would look at it and you would say, how is that person ever going to make it into heaven because it's so difficult, yet he is granted salvation by the Lord Jesus. And he is a testimony to the fact that with God, all things are possible. We don't write off rich people, wealthy people. They may struggle. They may have a hard time. But nevertheless, God can overcome that in their hearts and he can turn their hearts towards himself and they can, in fact, be saved. Next slide, you see the map and here are the three areas, the three tax centers, Capernaum, Caesarea, Jericho. Cover those areas. Rome brought in a lot of money as a result of those areas. You know, when we talk about Zacchaeus, I put on the next slide, you know, when I grew up in Sunday school, we would sing a little song, one of the first ones you'd read. And there would always be somebody in our church. Her name was Hazel Farm. Hazel Farm did the flannel graph. I mean, she must have had her doctorate in flannel graph. She was really good at flannel graph. And I remember her having the flannel graph up here. And when we would sing this song, or when she'd tell the story of Zacchaeus, She'd first of all put a tree up there, and and then she would talk about the tree. And then she'd have a little picture of a man, a little man, and she'd put him up in the tree, which of course was Zacchaeus. And she would explain and tell the whole story of Zacchaeus. And when we got done, she would teach us the song. And if we already knew it, we would sing the song. And here's the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up into a sycamore tree, for the Lord he would to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I am going to your house today, for I am going to your house today. And that was always a favorite song to sing because it was a great song. It had rhyme to it. And as we would sit there and look at that flannel graph of these cutouts that were pasted onto that flannel graph held there by some kind of whatever, heat, friction, whatever, as a result, you would sit there and you would sing this song and you'd think about Zacchaeus. And many of you, I'm sure... I had a similar experience. Verse 3 says, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. So Jesus is coming through Jericho. The interesting thing is, You have to understand, if you understand how God works in salvation, the Holy Spirit here is beginning to work in the heart of Zacchaeus. And that's not unfamiliar to Scripture and what we see in Scripture of God doing a work in a heart. For instance, we go over to Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It's the story of Lydia. And it says in verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And she was listening to Paul, him tell the gospel, and so on. And it says, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Just a a wonderful verse telling how God opens hearts. Hearts are closed, hearts are resistant, Hearts don't want to have anything to do with the Lord Jesus, but the Lord Jesus has all the power needed in order to open a heart, regardless who that is and how hard their heart might be. Her heart wasn't hard per se. She was a worshiper of God, and she was listening. So the Holy Spirit was already preparing her, and when it came time for Paul to give out the gospel, God just opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Another story, another incident of salvation, Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, and verses 15 and 20. And of course, this is the story of Paul, whose name then was Saul, turned into Paul after his conversion. But it says, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. So here something happens very, very quickly, and this light suddenly appears from heaven around him, and uh, he falls to the ground, And he suddenly hears a voice, and Jesus tells Saul that this is who is speaking. And so when we get to verse 15, But the Lord said to him, meaning Ananias, Go, for he is he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine. Bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And immediately, it says in verse 20, that Paul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. So you have quite a radical change taking place fairly quickly here. As Saul is knocked down, Saul sees the light, Saul is converted, and Ananias is chosen to take care of Paul, and his message, the message that goes to him, to Ananias, from God is, look, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. I've chosen him. Therefore, that's why I am saving him, because he is very important to me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And it says that he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. A third in instance here is in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Again, you're familiar with this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man that came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, you see the Holy Spirit working in Nicodemus' life. He's coming by night. He's seeking out Jesus. He wants to talk to him and inquire of him. And he has come to an understanding of who Jesus is, that he is a teacher. He has come from God. He is doing signs. God is with him. I mean, all this is prep work then for Jesus talking to him about the fact that, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. So, in every instance, wherever somebody is going to come to Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit is doing prep work. He is preparing the heart, preparing the life, preparing the mind of the individual in order that those people might eventually come to Him as Savior. Might take place in an hour, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, maybe over a few months, a year. God has all kinds of timetables for people as to how fast he's going to work and what he's going to do and accomplish in the situation. And the reason that this has to happen, that God has to do this work, is because of Romans 3.10, which says very clearly and very plainly, there is none who seeks for God. Just let that sink in a bit. Every person born here in this world, their natural inclination is that they will not seek for God. And unless God intervenes in their lives, they will never seek for Him. They will remain in that state until the day they die. No one seeks for God. Very plain statement, not difficult to understand. So if no one seeks for God, but yet people are found, then who's doing the seeking? Well, it's pretty easy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God, the Holy Spirit, that is doing the seeking. And the reason that that has to happen, and the reason no one seeks for God, is Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, where it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly, now I want you to notice what Walk means you Because it does not mean that there isn't physical activity. It means you were dead spiritually. Because you formerly walked. There's a physical activity, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly, notice, lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, though in a person's life, there is a lot of physical activity. People might be doing all kinds of things, yet spiritually, they are dead men and women walking around, because they are dead spiritually. Verse 4 says, but God, and thank God for all the but-gods that are in Scripture. Because it means now that God is intervening. God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions. Notice, he made us alive together with Christ. So he intervenes in a person's life. He quickens them. He makes them alive He makes them to come alive spiritually together with Christ. I made a note here that there are no degrees of deadness. There's no degrees of being dead. You are either dead or you are not. That is an airtight word. Being sick is not a degree of being dead. I hear people sometimes say, well, you know, the way it is is that. When we become a Christian, it's it's like we're laying in a hospital, we're really sick, and you know, we only have enough strength to be able to do something, and that is to open our mouths to take the medicine which cures us. Problem with that illustration is the Bible never talks about us being sick, and sickness is not being dead. The Bible says we are dead, which means we are incapable incapable of doing anything. A dead corpse is totally incapable of seeking God. That's why Romans 3.10 says that. John 15.16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It has to be that way. We're, again, incapable of choosing him. Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God Has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Beginning simply meaning beginning before he even created anything. In eternity past, Ephesians 1 3 and 4 tells us that God chose us in him from eternity past for salvation. John 1 13, who were born, this is talking about believers here, who were born again not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's not by my will contained in my flesh. It's not by the will of man. The way that someone is born again, the the way that someone comes to Christ, is because of God. It is God that does the work. That's what we're seeing here with Zacchaeus. One more verse, 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised or understood. So a natural man, a person in this world, an unbeliever, who is not regenerated, is a person who thinks that the things of Scripture are foolishness to them, because they are only spiritually understood, and that comes when you are born again, when you are given the ability to understand what the Bible says. So a dead man, a blind man, a deaf man, a dumb man, a mindless man cannot seek God. And all of those particular phrases are adjectives that that are described in Scripture of a person that is dead in their trespasses and sins, of those who are incapable of selecting God on their own. Those who who will not seek God, that's how they're described in Scripture. And they cannot seek God because they are in that condition. So note, as we look at Zacchaeus here, Zacchaeus goes from interest to see Jesus, to trying to see Jesus, to climbing a tree, to see Jesus see the progression here see the work of the holy spirit in his heart he is in pursuit of jesus why because jesus was in pursuit of him and let me tell you there was nothing that was going to stop him from pursuing jesus just i mean just think about it here here is a wealthy businessman he is climbing a tree to catch a glimpse of someone i mean he had, at this point, he had no thought of inconvenience, climbing a tree, or embarrassment, or public humiliation. He didn't care. You see, this is what happens when the Spirit of God is working in your life. Everything just kind of gets blocked out. And you are you just are so focused on the Gospel. You are so focused on the Lord Jesus Christ that really nothing else matters people that have come forward in in evangelistic crusades, big auditoriums, Billy Graham evangelistic meetings, they have come forward. And they have come forward and they've, they've left their family. They have left friends around them. They don't care how many thousands of people are seeing them walk an aisle and walk up to the front. They just want to do it because they are so absolutely riveted to the fact that they want salvation. They desire it from Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, nothing else matters. You will go to whatever lengths you have to, to find him. Before we leave these couple of verses here, just a photo here of a sycamore tree. In fact, this is, if you go to Israel today, you go to Jericho, your tour guide is going to take you by this and say, here is the tree that Zacchaeus climbed up in. Well, I really doubt that. I really doubt that, but it it makes for good interest for the tourists to see it and to marvel at it. But it was obviously similar, and you can just see how big it is. The good thing about this is it is a sycamore tree, and it is large, and you can see him finding a way to grab onto a branch, hoist himself up, get high enough so that he can see Jesus. I mean, he was small in stature, as it talks about here, but he had nothing but an insatiable desire to see Jesus, and he would, even in perhaps his good, expensive clothes he was wearing, being rich, he didn't care. He wanted to get up in this tree. He just has to see Jesus. One thing I put in here in the next slide is something just for us to think about. In the fact that the Holy Spirit starts small, in our lives, and you think about your own life. I just, I just put down some things here that I've heard people say and talk about as to how they came to Christ and how small it started. It may start small. Maybe it was a friend, a roommate in college, a coworker, a neighbor that made a remark that you got that got you thinking. Maybe a brother, sister, or parent or other relative became a believer, and you talked to them about it. Maybe you were invited to a church or evangelistic crusade. Maybe you were cruising the radio dial and came upon a speaker talking about salvation in Christ. Maybe you attended a church camp. Maybe you overheard a conversation two people were having about spiritual things, about Jesus, about the Bible. Maybe someone gave you a book or a tract to read and you read it and that's that started something. Maybe it was a serious illness you had that got you thinking. Maybe you were broke or you lost your business. You were at the end of your rope and someone came along and talked to you about Christ. Maybe you lost your husband or wife or a child and it got you thinking about spiritual things. I didn't put it on here, but, but maybe you went to a funeral. Maybe that got you thinking about death and eternity. And it was something that the Holy Spirit started working in your life and brought you to the point of salvation. Maybe you were just sitting there on a park bench or on a beach or in a campus student union or a dormitory, and someone approached you and shared the gospel. Maybe your man-made religion grew empty and you began to search to find the truth. Maybe you heard a song about Jesus etc., etc., etc. This could go on. There are millions of ways uh, that God directs a person's circumstances by his providence that brings one to Christ. And I ask, I ask this of you. What is your story? Sit down and think about how you came to Christ and think about the journey and the circumstances and what was involved in it. You know, and you might have not thought that much about it. Or you might have taken credit for, well, you know, I did this. And, you know, I was smart enough to do this. And, well, I just had myself in the right place at the right time. You know what? None of that stuff is true. God was the one that had you at the right place at the right time. God was the one that revealed to you in your spirit, in your heart, who he was. And placed Faith there to believe the gospel. It's all Him. Salvation is all of God, none of us. And it's just so interesting. And I've, I've heard so many because I was in the, for one thing, in an evangelistic organization, Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, and all the testimonies. Even we would go and we would witness on the beaches in Florida and California. And at the end of the day, all these kids would line up and go up to a microphone and tell us what happened and how kids found Christ and how God directed them to these individuals. And it's just one story after another, just God doing all different kinds of ways to bring people to himself. This summer, we had a couple over. She was raised Catholic, he was raised Lutheran. I've heard their story before, but I just asked him to tell it again. I wanted to just hear it again, because it is a very detailed story. There are so many things that happened in their lives and how they came to christ and and God had just Holy Spirit had just been working in their lives and oh it just it just it just blesses my heart every time I hear this because what you're hearing and what you're seeing is the providence of God working in people's lives to bring them to Christ, and every Part of it is miraculous. It's wonderful, and God has this just at this time, and has this person here at this time, and it just, it it just is amazing, all the different ways and how God works and does all these things, and it is it is it's it's a good thing for you to, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to think back in your own salvation, how you came to Christ, and what it was, how it all took place, and. You can look at all the specifics and think, Oh, that was God that did that. Oh, that was the Holy Spirit that was working inside of me, that uh, convicted me, and I, I felt this way. You know, it 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 all seems so random, but in back of it all was the hand of God. You talk about a personal God working personally in your life so that you can have a personal relationship with him. All of our stories are about that. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. But this is what we call, in theological terms, we call this the effectual or the specific call of God. I don't know how Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. He's walking through the town he either knew it because he's omniscient, or somebody talked to him about it. it. really doesn't make any difference. This is Jesus specifically calling Zacchaeus to salvation. You see, there are two calls that go out to every person in this world. First of all, there's the general call. It goes out to everyone. Matthew 22:14 14 says, For many are called but few are chosen. That call that's talked about there is the general call that goes out to everyone. Uh, It may be through the gospel. It might not be through the gospel. But a call goes out to every person born in this world. It may be just the call of nature itself described in Romans chapter 1, where it says, whether you look in a telescope or you look in a microscope, all the things about creation are evident to see. And you have to literally suppress the truth put it down in order to disbelieve it. You have to put it away. But it is all right there. And that's a general call. That's general revelation, we call it, that has been given, and every person has that. And then there's the specific call, and that call goes out to God's chosen or to his elect. You find, for instance, uh, it in Romans 8, verse 30, where it says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So in this calling, which is different from number one, in this calling, when he calls people, and he calls them individually, specifically, these all will be justified. They'll all be saved. And they will all end up being glorified in heaven. So this is a specific call. It goes out to those whom he has chosen, who are his elect, and the result will be justification, sanctification, and glorification. So here in verse 5 is the specific call of God to Zacchaeus. He looks up, he sees him in the tree, and he calls him by name Zacchaeus. You see, Jesus doesn't specifically call everyone that day. He doesn't say, and you, Ezra, and you, Bill, and you, Mary, and you, Mark, or Matthew, or whatever type of a thing. I'm just using terms, names for non-Christians that might have been there that day. He doesn't call everybody. But he does call Zacchaeus that day. That's the specific call of God going out to him. Verse 6, and he hurried Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him gladly and i just got to say wow when the holy spirit has prepared a heart it can't wait to respond notice he did it fast here he hurried down and he did it gladly there was no twist in an arm here it was absolutely resistible i hear people saying well god forces people to receive the gospel, or forces them to go into heaven, and they come into heaven screaming and kicking. That's absolutely false. There's no kicking and screaming. Every person that God calls and that responds to the gospel, they come willingly, they come gladly, they can't, in fact, they can't wait to come. No arm twisting, because the Holy Spirit has done a work that makes the gospel, that makes Jesus Christ absolutely irresistible. It's just like getting a cold ice cream cone on a hot, humid day. You go by the ice cream stand, and you see them loading up the ice cream cones and handing it to people, and you say, You know what? i got to have that. It's irresistible. That's the way the gospel becomes to us when the Holy Spirit works in our lives. John 1 12 says, But as many as received him. Notice at the end of verse 6 it says, He received him gladly. Well, John 1 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So there is a receiving, and receive means to believe, and believe means to receive. Zacchaeus did not care who saw him. In fact, for someone so despised by society, for anyone to come to your house was an honor. This was an invitation for him to leave his life of sin and corruption and receive salvation through Christ. You see, I have no problem with invitations. As long as they're sincere, as long as there's not a lot of pressure put on people, as long as there's no pressure put on people. The only pressure put on people is what the Holy Spirit is doing when he is convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, if you personally are talking to somebody, and you invite them to receive Christ, to believe, to repent, and so on, that's very appropriate. Invitations are great. Verse 7, when they saw it, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be uh, the guest of a man who is a sinner. So, guess what? Nothing new. The crowd was upset. Obviously, there's Pharisees in the crowd, and they're standing there, and they're all grumbling about it. They're saying he has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. You know, it's the same old pharisaical problem. You can't be with evil, sinful people. That's what they believed. How dare you do that? It's interesting, the term, the Greek term that's used here to be the guest of is the Greek term katalou. It's a word which means to hang out with. It doesn't mean to quickly go to somebody's house, spend five minutes, and leave. It means that you're going to go in, you're going to kick back, and you're going to actually hang out with them. And of course, that was always the criticism of Jesus, that he was hanging out with the prostitutes, hanging out with the tax collectors, hanging out with the drunkards, with the scum of society. Always got criticized for it. But Jesus just didn't go And spend a little time saying, Oh, I got to get out of here now because I don't want to get contaminated. No, he was happy to hang out with them because he was the one that had the answer to their lives. Verse 8 It says here, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, you need to understand something here, and that's this that between verses 7 and 8, They go to Zacchaeus' home. Jesus shares the gospel, and Zac puts his trust in Christ as Savior. And somewhere at the end of the conversation, Zacchaeus stops to make a declaration. He's making a declaration. He is taking a stand. Notice how verse 8 starts. And the reason I say that, you say, well, aren't you reading into something between verses 7 and 8? I'm not reading in with no basis for it. I am understanding that there are things that happen between verse 7 and 8. Why? Because verse 8 suddenly starts, Zacchaeus stopped. Now that makes no sense with verse 7, other than you see that they went to the house, they had conversation, maybe had dinner together, whatever. Jesus is talking about salvation, the gospel, and that type of a thing. Zacchaeus is converted. He is saved. And now he is making a declaration. So he stops the conversation. And he says to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone or of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, that's not unusual that we don't see what exactly the Lord said to Zacchaeus in terms of a gospel message. I don't know if you'll find any place specifically, maybe chapter 3 of John with Nicodemus, you get a little bit of a flavor of it, but that's just talking about being born again in the fact that a person has to be regenerated even to see the truth and accept the truth. Because Salvation is a miraculous work of God in a person's life. Does a gospel presentation need to be given? Absolutely. But in this instance, it's not critical. And we understand Zacchaeus is stopping in the middle of this conversation, or at the end of this conversation, and he's making a declaration. His life and his heart and thinking has suddenly changed. He has been convicted by the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 8... He has a repentant heart, just amazing, just fantastic, to think about the change that's taking place in him. So Zacchaeus addresses Jesus as Lord here. Notice he says, Behold, Lord. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. I think that's what Zacchaeus has done here between verses 7 and 8 and he is doing it here in verse 8, and saying, Behold, Lord. I mean, that shows his heart. So if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Zacchaeus's life has changed, and his changed life results in taking action. So what does he do? Two things here. He, he says, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. I mean, you talk about the gospel changing a person's life. I mean, right here, this person is unlike the young rich ruler who could not give away his possessions. Here is Zacchaeus. He's given away half of it for one thing. And number two, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. So now he's saying, hey, If I've defrauded somebody, four times I'm giving back what I've extorted from them. One point here, and that's the word if. The if here in Greek is a first-class conditional if. It means if, and it is true. So he's saying, if I have defrauded anyone, and boy have I, I will give back four times as much. What's significant about him saying that is not only is it a large number, but that wasn't even required by the law. Uh, Numbers chapter 5, verse 7 says, Then he shall confess his sins, which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him whom he has wrong. So all that was required was he make restitution in full, in other words, pay everything back, and then add to it a fifth, kind of an interest payment type of a thing, and that was it. And here comes Zacchaeus, and he's saying, I'm going to give four times back. I mean, you talk about somebody who was really convicted. Uh, He was really convicted. So this is way over and above what the law required. And this is what regeneration does. This is what a changed heart and life does. It responds to the gospel in a big way, no doubt. This guy was a belie- became a believer for this kind of a uh, response. Verse nine, and Jesus said to him, "Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham." So Jesus pronounces instant justification, and this is a total contrast to the Pharisees who are putting in the hours, they're putting in the blood, the sweat, the tears to be justified. They're carrying the burdens of all this, they're they're bogged down by all their laws and rules and regulations. Here this guy, Zacchaeus, just simply puts his faith and trust in Christ, and instantly he is justified. That's got to have blown the Pharisees' minds, those who are listening. Jesus is not talking here about some kind of racial salvation. Notice the end of verse 9, because he too is a son of Abraham. We're not talking here that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham because he is a Jew and is inheriting this. No, no. He's a son of Abraham because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's following in the footsteps of Abraham who exercised faith. We do the same thing. If we put our faith and trust in Christ as Savior, we're following in the steps of Abraham. We, too, are a son of Abraham. Not in some kind of ethnic, racial sense, but in a spiritual sense. We are spiritual sons of Abraham. Romans two twenty-eight and 29 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. So there is no salvation based on ethnic inheritance or works righteousness. It is based on faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, and evidenced by a changed life that we're seeing here in Zacchaeus. And then verse 10 where we started for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost so this is what the whole story of Zacchaeus is about jesus seeks those who are lost and jesus saves those who are lost so all who are pursued by jesus by him will find him and all who are pursued by him will be saved and all who are pursued by him will be changed. That's what this passage is driving home to us. That's what Dr. Luke wants us to understand, and why he put this in here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is so that we can understand that, number one, we are pursued by Christ unto salvation, we are saved by Him, and we are changed, transformed by Him all in a package deal. Ray Pritchard says, concerning seeking and saving, if the devil loads up your mind with accusations like, you are a great sinner, just agree with him and say, Jesus came to save sinners, and thus he came to save me. If he says to you, you are lost altogether, say, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. You see, our refuge is always in Christ and what he has done. He is our shield. He is our protection. He is our rock. Well, application, three applications. Number one, the pursuit of God after a sinner is a wonder to behold. It really is. When somebody gives their testimony, listen to them. Listen to how the Holy Spirit was at work in their lives even before they came to Christ, pre-salvation. Number two, all stories are different, and none are insignificant. The, quote, raised in a Christian home, resulting in salvation, end quote, testimony, is just as miraculous as the down-and-outer drug addicts or the up-and-outer famous and wealthy's testimony of coming to Christ. I think a lot of times people feel, I don't have much of a testimony, I was raised in a Christian home. Came to Christ as a young age. I'm not like, you know, others who've got these dramatic, gut-wrenching testimonies of how lost they were and whatever. Look, number one, any person born into a Christian home is born a wretch. Whether you became a Christian at 5 or at 10 or at 12, it doesn't matter. You were born a wretch, You were born apart from God. You were an enemy, an alien of God at that point. You needed to be saved. And the fact that God miraculously provided a Christian home for you to be born in is a great and wonderful thing and testimony to his providential saving you by providing a Christian home and keeping that Christian home together, and all the blessings that you received as a result of being born into a Christian home. Don't ever depreciate the fact that you became a Christian in a Christian home at a young age or whenever. That is just as miraculous and wonderful as any other testimony. Lastly, number three, God is to be praised and glorified for his entire work of salvation in a person's life, from very small promptings by the Holy Spirit to his dynamic power of a transforming life. That's what the story of Zacchaeus teaches us. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up into a sycamore tree, For the Lord he would to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. Let's pray. Father God, we just are so grateful for this passage of Scripture, for these verses, these ten verses. For again, a confirmation of the pattern that we see throughout the Bible, whether it's Lydia, Paul, Nicodemus, whoever it is that is saved, Cornelius, any of the disciples, all their stories. It's just a confirmation of how you work, how you work in people's lives, how you worked in people in the Old Testament, all kinds of people, your providence so evident, the way you put things together. You're just such a great and wonderful God. And in all of our lives who have come to know you, you were working there before we even understood it or knew it. So we're thankful for this, this passage, for what it teaches us. We're thankful for you bringing salvation to Zacchaeus, to his household. We're thankful for the work that you did in his life, a transforming work that we can look at and see what a difference Christ makes in a person's life as he has extorted all this money. And yet now, because of a changed life, he is giving it away, giving it back, making the wrongs that he committed, making them rights. Lord, we're just thankful for this that we've looked at today, how it blesses our hearts. And we just honor and glorify You for Your work in the hearts, in the minds, in the lives of men as we see You save them each and every day. For we pray this all now in Jesus' name and for His sake alone. Amen. (laughs)